little fun fact about me, I actually hate video games, um, mainly because I'm no good at them, as you can see. But if there was one video game that I liked, it's Mario Kart. And there's one reason I like Mario Kart so much is because it is so stinking simple. I don't know if you've played any of these modern video games, but the controllers nowadays have like 50 buttons on them. It's like two different joysticks. You're trying to do it once. You got all these buttons on the back and on the front, and it's just really, really complicated. And for someone who doesn't invest eight hours a day like some middle schoolers do on video games, I'm just no good at them. I think the biggest eye-opener was when video games moved online. And if you, like, try to play someone online who is literally investing 40 hours a week to video games, you're just not going to do well. So I don't like video games, but again, Mario Kart is pretty awesome. And what I love about Mario Kart is there's really only one control that matters. It is the button that controls the gas. And yeah, you need to steer as well, but you're not using every button on the controller. It is the gas button, the, the button that is go. In fact, there, there is technically a brake button when you play Mario Kart. But if you use that, even like going into tight turns, if you use the brake button, you're going to fall behind. The key to Mario Kart is keep your finger on the gas at all times and steer the best you can. Now, we've been in this series called The Key to Everything, and we learned that teachability is the key to growing in our relationship with God. It's the key to growing in our faith, but it's also the key when it comes to growing in our careers and in our goals and our relationships and so on. We believe that the Bible teaches that everything we do, we should do as if doing it to the Lord. So teachability allows us to honor God more. Teachability, I think, works in a similar way to Mario Kart. Again, the key to Mario Kart is just keep your foot, or I guess your finger, on the gas the entire time. Some of us, when it comes to teachability, we keep our foot on the gas at all times. We're constantly learning and evaluating our beliefs and trying to look at things from different perspectives. And we're trying to actively learn and doing our best to just steer our way through this life. While others, if we're honest, we've let our foot off the gas just a little bit when it comes to teachability. And here's what I've learned. Those of us who've let our foot off the gas, it's almost never because we don't want to learn. We we all want to learn, but those of us who've taken our foot off the gas, it's usually because we don't think we need to grow in a specific area. It's not that we think we know everything. We just think that we know enough and that there's not enough room to grow. That is why today's message is called the teachability choice. First of all, it requires the belief that we can always grow in any area, that no matter what, there's always something that we can learn. And I'm going to show you an example in just a moment. But we also believe that staying teachable is an intentional choice. It's a choice that we have to make every single day. And this controller is like vibrating on this table right now. So I'm going to put this on the floor. It's like just making all these noises and stuff. So we believe that uh, teachability, it's an intentional choice that we have to make every single day. And the Apostle Paul modeled this so well. Uh, If you want to follow along, maybe you're at home and you have your Bibles or your Bible app. We're going to stay put in one chapter today, uh, Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 4 because Paul gives us a little bit of background 
on his life that will help set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Uh, If there was anyone who could have justified thinking they don't have to grow, it would have been Paul. He has this resume that we're going to see in just a moment. And uh, starting in chapter, chapter 3, verse 4, he kind of lays out his qualifications. He lays out his resume. He says this. He says, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And he begins to lay out what those are. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's really weird, but if you're a Jewish person, that is not weird. That is something that was really important to their culture. He says, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. See, to the Jews, lineage was very important. Your status was really important. So Paul lays out that not only is he Jewish, he is a pure-blooded Jew. That alone put him above the others in that culture. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, there were two that were elite tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe, tribe of Judah. He maintained the Hebrew traditions even though he lived in pagan cities. So on top of all that, he was well-cultured. He received the best Jewish training from the time he was a young boy, and he received it in the best possible place. He received it in Jerusalem. He became a Pharisee, which was the strictest and the most respected sect of the Jewish religion. This would have meant that he had the entire law memorized. In fact, he probably had large portions of the Old Testament memorized word for word. And he persecuted the followers of Jesus, which at that time the Jewish leaders considered a large threat to their religion. And Paul would have been rewarded and elevated greatly for that. Paul is saying that if anyone could have let their foot off the gas, it was him. And he would have been right. But despite all those qualifications, look at the conclusion he comes to, starting in verse 7. He says, I once thought these things were valuable. At one time, I believed these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. We'll talk a little bit more about that end in just a moment. But look what Paul was willing to do. Paul was willing to reevaluate everything he thought he knew about God and religion. That maybe it had nothing to do with obedience to the law. Maybe it had nothing to do with the right things and the wrong things. Paul was willing to reevaluate everything he knew about race. I wonder if there's some application there today. That maybe his bloodline was of no importance to Christ and that Jesus loved Samaritans and Gentiles just as much as he did Jewish people. He was willing to reevaluate everything he thought he knew about Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just some radical trying to stir up trouble by challenging the state and religious leaders by making bold claims 
flipping tables and elevating the poor and the women and the non-Jewish people, but that he was the true son of God and that Jesus was the bridge between God and man. So the question is, when was the last time we were willing to reevaluate what we thought we knew? I, I don't know if you remember, uh, it was probably two or three years ago, the dress that broke the internet. It, it was that debate of whether you saw the white and gold dress or the black and blue dress. It, everybody saw it. Everyone was talking about it. It was the exact same picture, but for some reason, something with the brain or something, some people saw white and gold and some saw black and blue. Well, what's interesting is if two people were in the same room looking at the same picture— but they saw two different things. You know what's really interesting is the reaction. At first, you'd look at the other person and you'd be like, what? Are you crazy? How could you possibly see white and gold? I'm seeing black and blue. How could you possibly see that? So at first there was surprise, but the second reaction was so important. You would go back to the picture and you would try your hardest to see it the way the other person saw it. You would do everything you could. You would look at it from different angles and different lighting. You tried everything you possibly could to see the same thing from a different perspective. I think our world would look so different if we could apply what we applied to that dress to everyday life. If we could sit down with friends and family and look at the same piece of information but through someone else's shoes. That is what teachability looks like. Paul did this all the time. Paul, he never took his foot off the gas when it comes to teachability. He never considered himself to have arrived. And isn't it true that these are the people who are, we are most attracted to? We are attracted to teachable people. There's nothing worse than a stubborn leader. Someone who is, has control, someone who has power, and they think they know everything, and they refuse to look at things from another perspective. I think every single one of us at some point in our life, we've worked for a boss like that. A boss who, who they have one way of doing things and no one can talk them into doing it some, some way differently. And it just frustrates us. Like if they could only look at this, this way we're doing things and just tweak it a little bit, it could make all the difference in the world. It's, it's probably why we're so turned off by politics. Because politicians are famous for, for sticking to one belief or one way of doing things, and they never admit when they're wrong. They never admit when maybe another way could work better. They just never consider anything other than what their party stands for. But a teachable leader, my goodness, we love to follow a teachable leader. We love to follow someone who's constantly re-evaluating their beliefs, re-evaluating how they're doing things. Uh, in fact, other than spiritual maturity and spiritual health, teachability is probably the number one thing we look for when our church hires staff. We want to make sure that people are willing to learn and willing to adjust and be flexible and be open-minded about the things that we do. And I honestly think that is one of Pastor Rick's best attributes. He's been in ministry for over 40 years, and he hasn't taken his foot off the gas for a second. 
He's constantly trying to learn from other people, learn from other perspectives, see how he can change the way he's doing things, not for himself, but for the kingdom of God. Now, if you appreciate about that about our lead pastor, would you just let him know that in the comments right now? I don't know if he knows how to check the comments, but we'll teach him afterwards, and he's a teachable person, so I'm sure he'll be able to learn. So how do we keep our foot on the gas? How do we stay teachable? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at five things that Paul modeled for us on how to stay teachable, things that he did. The first one is this, is that he refused to see finish lines only mile markers. He refused to see finish lines, only mile markers. Philippians 3.12 says, uh, Paul's saying this, he says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. He's talking about the goal of becoming like Christ. If there was anyone who could have claimed to have arrived again, it would have been Paul. Now, before that was from a different perspective, but at the time of writing this, he has planted several churches. God had used him to write over half of the New Testament. He was like a super Christian, but he still didn't consider himself to have arrived. Anything that Paul accomplished in his eyes was just another mile marker. It was never the finish line. Uh, When I was a kid, our family, we would drive to Florida uh, every single year. My grandparents lived in Florida, so uh, every spring break or maybe uh, Christmas vacation, we'd drive to Florida, stay with them for a week or two. And uh, this was pre-GPS. And could we just pause for a second and give God thanks for the GPS? I I mean, people all the time, they try to give me directions, like you head north, and then at the third light, you turn wet. And I'm like, I'm not carrying a compass with me. Just give me the address so I could type it into Google Maps. But anyways, uh, we would drive to Florida uh, pre-GPS. And at that time, this was even before MapQuest and all these different tools that we have now. Uh, At that time, my dad would call AAA and he would ask for something called a triptych. I don't know if anyone's ever used that before, but what a triptych was, it was uh, something that AAA would mail to you. It was like a little notebook, and it it was a a shrunken down map. So every like maybe 10 exits on the throughway, you'd flip the page. And uh, my dad didn't really need this. He had driven to Florida enough times to know the way, but he would still get it just in case he got lost. But he would give me the triptych, and what I would do on the way to Florida is I would keep an eye out for all the exits. And every time I would pass that, like exit 45, I would mark it on the triptych. Exit 46, exit 47, and I would keep track of our journey to Florida. Now, the thing that I learned and what this taught me is there was a big difference between a mile marker, or in this case, a exit sign, and the finish line. It was good to measure progress, but you can't confuse progress with an arrival. If I thought every single exit was like the finish line, or even every state border was the finish line, I was just setting, I would have been setting myself up for disappointment. It was just a measuring stick of progress, not whether or not we've arrived. So the question is, is it possible that we've made some mile markers in our life finish lines. And not even ones in the past, but I'm talking about ones that we're looking forward to in the future. For example, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at mile markers in my life thinking that once I reach that, then I'll be happy. 
once I achieve this, once I get married, once I close on that house, once I finish college, once I get that promotion, once my income level reaches a certain amount, then I'll be happy. But what I found is that never really provides a lasting satisfaction. Any time in our life where we think this phrase, when I, then I, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. When I achieve this, then I'll feel that. When I get to this, then I'll feel that. We're just setting ourselves up for disappointment, frustration, and discouragement. So Paul, he, he didn't confuse mile markers and finish lines. The second thing is this, is that he believed there was more in him and for him. He believed there was more in him and for him. He continues and says this in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. This idea of pressing on was the same Greek word that was used when describing a sprinter. Uh, now, I'm not a runner, and those of you who know me know I'm not a runner, but I did run track in high school. Uh, let me rephrase that. I was on the track team in high school. Let me rephrase that once more. I joined the track team because all my friends were on the track team, and I did everything I could possibly do to avoid running. So I did all the jumping events and pole vaulting and stuff like that because I always hated running. But for anyone who knows anything about running— you know there's a big difference between long-distance running and sprinting. Long-distance running, endurance running is all about pace. You, you have to know your pace and you have to stick to it. The worst thing you can do as a long-distance runner is adjust your pace based on another runner in front of you. You just have to assume that maybe they're going a little bit too fast right now and they're going to fall back. You have to know your pace and stick to it. But a sprinter, it's completely different. Pace is meaningless. For a sprinter, it's all about explosion out of the running blocks. It's all about running as fast as you possibly can. You put everything on the line. If there's a runner that's a little bit ahead of you, you have to believe that you have the potential to catch them. You have to believe that you're faster and that you can catch them. We are most teachable when we believe that there is more potential inside of us. When we believe that we have something to learn. When we believe that maybe we don't have all the information now, but we can catch up. That is when we're most teachable. So Paul, he believed there was more in him and for him. The third thing is this, is that he didn't put much stock in his past successes. He didn't put much stock in his past successes. Verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take in hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Have you ever met someone who was successful in one thing or successful one time and they try to ride that success as long as possible? Companies do this all the time. I mean, think about BlackBerry for a moment. BlackBerry owned the business cell phone market. If you, if you were in business, if you worked for some sort of corporate company, you probably had a BlackBerry because they owned that market. But they didn't own it forever. They stopped innovating at a certain point. Or think about Blockbuster. If you wanted a movie that was already out of theaters, you really had one choice. It was Blockbuster. 
And it worked until it didn't. But we see people struggle with these things too. Uh, my favorite example is from one of my favorite movies, Napoleon Dynamite. So go ahead and watch this clip. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. That's what I'm talking about. I better go. <laughs> How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things have been different. I'd have gone pro in a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. Kill. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. Right on. So, Uncle Rico, he is living in the past, right? He is he, he, he's doing that question like, what if? What if coach would have put me in the fourth quarter? He was relying on the past, and it wasn't even a success in his case. It was just a what if, but we've all met people like that, that they are just stuck in the past, and they refuse to look forward. They're only looking backwards. I mean, what would happen if we were to drive, and I have a rearview mirror here. What would happen if we were to drive, and we put the rearview mirror right in front of our eyes, and this was the primary thing we looked at? I mean, worst case scenario is we would crash, but best case scenario is we would just drive really inefficiently. What do we do with our past successes? We want to keep them in the rearview mirror and keep them in the proper perspective, meaning we keep our eyes forward and we occasionally glance at the rearview mirror and we, we learn from it. We can embrace it for a moment, but we learn from it and then we move on. And, and by the way, that's true for our past successes, but it's also true for our past failures. Pastor Rick talked about this extensively last week, and you missed, if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and watch that message. But for our failures, our mistakes, and our sin, what do we do? We learn from it, but we keep our eyes focused forward. God wants us to move forward. We, we go to him and ask for forgiveness, and then we keep it in the rearview mirror after that. We don't live in the past. So Paul, he, he didn't put too much stock in his past. And then the fourth thing is this, is he let the hope of the future compel him. Verse 13 continues, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. The, the Greek word that we translate to straining means stretching intensely forward. We stretch intensely forward. When was the last time that you stretched yourself. 
When was the last time that you tried your best to learn something new? We naturally learn all the time without trying. We learn from experiences and different things in our life. But when was the last time that you intentionally stretched yourself forward to learn something? I try to do this on a regular basis. And lately, the area I've been pressing in on and learning and trying my best to stretch myself with is learning about racism. I came to the realization just a little bit ago that almost every book that I've read in the last year and probably beyond has been written by white men. Almost every novel, almost every theological book and leadership book have been written by white men. And I just came to the realization that I need to learn from other people's perspectives. I want to learn from people who don't look like me or think like me or have the same experiences as me. So what I've committed to do for the rest of this year is to stretch myself that way. Uh, I want to learn from people who don't look like me. So I'm going to be reading books by African Americans, by Native Americans, by more women. Starting this week, I I was reading a book called I'm Still Here by an African American woman named Austin Channing Brown. And let me tell you, it is stretching me. It is helping me to see things and think about things from a completely different perspective. Why am I doing this? Because I want to learn more. I want to learn from the experiences and the perspectives of others. And I just came to the conclusion that the best way to learn about racism is to learn from people who have experienced it. Uh, Just this past Tuesday, I had the privilege of sitting down for coffee uh, with a black pastor downtown. And and I just kept my mouth shut as much as possible and just listened to his stories. Listened to the things that he struggles with and deals with and has to face on a daily basis. And I learned so much in that one hour conversation. Listen, the status quo is almost always easier but it's rarely better. The status quo is almost always easier. It's always easier not to learn and not to stretch ourselves, but it is rarely better to do so. So he let the hope of the future compel him. The fifth thing is this, is that he always kept his eyes on the prize. Again, Paul wasn't distracted by mile markers. He was focused on the future. He was focused on the goal. And he says this, Philippians chapter Uh, 3 verse 14 he says I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus he presses on see this life is not all that there is if we live this life with our eyes on mile markers we're going to be focused on temporary pleasures career goals retirements all good things but they're just mile markers They weren't meant to be the thing that we're pressing on and we're focused on. Paul was focused on one thing. He was focused on heaven. See, when we change our perspective and we change our focus to that, it changes everything about us. It it changes the way we raise our children. It changes the way we handle our finances and we give and we're generous. It changes the way we view our legacy. It changes the way we interact with friends and family. It changes the way we view purpose. And it changes the reason we want to remain teachable. See, when this race is over, this race of life, it's not really over. 
in a lot of ways, this is just another leg of the race. Uh, I love what Paul says in a, another letter that he wrote to the church of uh, Corinthians. He says this, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul's saying that we're basically just camping on this earth. We're, this earth is temporary. And by the way, camping is awesome. I love this life more than anyone. Camping is awesome, but it wasn't meant to be forever. Paul is saying this life is like a tent. It's not meant to stand forever. Eventually this tent is destroyed. But when it is, we have the opportunity to move from the tent to a house that's built by God. A, a house that's eternal, a house that will last forever. And the good news is this, is that getting to heaven is not based on anything that we can do ourselves. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. Remember in the beginning of this message, we talked about how Paul, he, he was not stuck in his old way of thinking. He, he, he was willing to reevaluate everything he thought he knew about God. And the thing that he came to the conclusion was, was that our, our eternity is based on faith, not the law. The religious leaders at the time, they taught that adherence to the law was the key to heaven. But Jesus taught that it's by faith or by grace through faith. So the way that we get heaven, the way that we get eternity with God is simply by putting our faith in him. So the question is, when this leg of the race is over, where are we going to spend eternity? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the love that you modeled through Jesus. We thank you for the, the incredible lessons that Paul teaches us in the New Testament. God, we give you thanks for that. We just ask that we would all be teachable, that we can all look at things from a different perspective, never being content with the status quo, always wanting to learn how we can honor you more, always wanting to learn more about your heart. God, we thank you so much, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, real quick. If you today, if you say, I want to put my faith in Jesus, I, I want to dedicate my life to him. I, I want to take Jesus up on his offer and accept the gift of eternal life, accept the gift of a house that will last forever. Will you, wherever you are right now, will you just pray something like this in your heart? Father, I believe that you sent Jesus to live among us. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and I, I believe that I can't do this on my own. God, so today I ask that you would forgive me. I'm sorry for the mistakes I've made. I'm not going to try to do this on my own anymore, though, God. I want you in my life. I give you my life today. I put my faith in you. God, change me. Teach me. And come into my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.